0: Today I'm speaking with Dr. Jean-Luc Margot. Dr. Margot is a professor of Earth, Planetary, and Space Sciences at UCLA. He's done a lot of research on Venus. He's the instructor for the SETI program or the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence program at UCLA. And he's the real deal in terms of astrophysics, astrobiology, etc. So in this podcast, naturally, we talked about aliens we talked about asteroid impacts the possibility of life on europa his research with venus and a lot of other cool things so tune in and enjoy you're listening to the elder llama podcast the show that inspires curious minds to ponder the secrets of the universe my name is eric i'm a ucla undergrad stem major and in this podcast i combine my knowledge of astrophysics evolutionary biology and the nature of the human mind to make cohesive observations about the world I'm here with Dr. Jean-Luc Margot. Dr. Margot, thank you for joining me. Pleasure to be here, Eric. So you do a lot of cool work in the astrophysics world, and I'm really excited to get into it. Tell everybody what you do at UCLA.
1: Sure. I'm a professor here in the Department of Earth, Planetary, and Space Science, and also in the Department of Physics and Astronomy. And I study planets, and I teach about planets and astronomy at the university.
0: And you're also involved in the SETI program. Is that correct?
1: That's correct. So a few years ago, a NASA mission called the Kepler mission showed that essentially every star on average has a planetary system. And that really uh, inspired me to start devoting some of my research time to searching for evidence of life elsewhere and evidence of civilizations elsewhere. So there are tens of billions of Earth-like planets out there. And the probability that there's some other, uh, certainly life form out there, and possibly civilization, is not zero. And therefore, it seems to make sense to at least uh, look for evidence of other forms of life.
0: It's surreal to me that the possibility of extraterrestrial intelligence has shifted from being something from science fiction to something that's actually seriously considered in the scientific community. And I think that's a very important step for our species. These efforts are one of the things that excites me most about science right now. I like learning about a wide range of things, but for me, astronomy and pondering extraterrestrial life, it gives me this perspective that I don't get from any other subject. I think that so often people are so caught up in, like, what's right in front of them and and the mortal woes of being a human on this pale blue dot, but we kind of lose the bigger picture of, like, the immensity of it all. And for me, uh, astronomy and just a little bit of knowledge of how big everything is, it gives me a sort of freedom. Before we started recording, you mentioned that you had worked with Carl Sagan when you were at Cornell University. And of course, the late and great Carl Sagan, he was an excellent communicator. And it seems like one of his goals was to provide the perspective of astronomy to the layperson, to teach them if but a little bit of the immensity of it all. And I think he had a passion for that. So I want to ask you, what is your purpose and your drive for being an astronomer?
1: Sure. An important clarification. I didn't I didn't get to work with Carl, unfortunately. I was a young graduate student when he was a professor on the faculty in the Department of Astronomy at Cornell University. Uh, But I, you know, I got to meet him and I got to attend his talks, and it was a truly uh, inspiring uh, presence. Uh, Carl was so eloquent and so articulate, Um, an excellent scientist, you know, publishing excellent science and also trained himself to uh, communicate superbly with the public and engage with the public. So um, that was, that was a profound inspiration. Um, My goal, I don't have Carl's talents, unfortunately, (laughs) uh, but I am uh, just as curious about our universe and uh, the planets around us. And so my goal is to use my best uh, skills to learn as much as we can about the planets out there. Uh, so some of the big questions we want to understand how it all happened, right? What what drives the mechanisms of planet formation? Uh, what drives the evolution of planets? Um, are there other Earth-like planets out there? What are their environments like, and so on and so forth? Um, so I'm, you know, I was fortunate to um, be good at math and uh, was interested in science from an early age. So I I, I got. Uh, excellent training in science and engineering. And I know I apply these tools with uh, telescopes on Earth or spacecraft to learn as much as I can and share that knowledge with others through publications or or public talks.
0: When I hear about these efforts to discover new exoplanets and these figures of how many planets are, are out there, I believe them because I, I put my money on science. but I don't really understand how you guys might go about making those estimates. So when trying to make a survey of the number of exoplanets in a galaxy, for instance, how do you guys go about that?
1: Well, there are a variety of techniques to search for exoplanets. Um, You know, we teach a general education course here at UCLA called Astrobiology, in which we uh, describe all of these techniques in great detail Um, one, one technique that you've probably heard of is called the transit technique. When a planet passes in front of a star, the total amount of light that you get from the star decreases a little bit. So if you see these periodic, uh, decreases in the amount of light from a star, that's a good sign that there's a planet in orbit around it. Another method is called the Doppler or radial velocity technique, where you measure slight changes in the, in the line of sight velocity of the star with respect to an observer. And the star is essentially um, reacting to the motion of the planet around it and moves a little bit, right? So both objects orbit their common center of mass. So you can detect the presence of a planet that way. So these are the most, uh, two of the most common uh, methods for detecting exoplanets. Um, In my group, we haven't actually, focused on detecting exoplanets, but we've uh, certainly looked at the architecture of planetary systems. what is the number of planets in in exoplanetary systems? What are their relative uh, inclinations, what their orbits look like, and so on and so forth.
0: And what are our current estimates for how many planets there are out there?
1: Well, as I said, in in the galaxy, uh, essentially every star has planets on average. And we know that most stars uh, are, in a sense, similar to Earth. Their their mass is less than Neptune. Um, And we know also that about 85% of these planetary systems out there are very flat, just like the solar system, which indicates that these planetary systems form in a disk. So that process seems to be fairly well understood. Uh, so there's you know profusion of planets out there kepler also quantified how many planets are in the so called habitable zone that region of space where water can remain in liquid form and it's something like 20% you know 10 to 20% of planets out there that are in the habitable zone with a size comparable to earth so that's a huge number of potentially habitable environments we're talking tens of billions Of potentially habitable environments in the galaxy. And we also know that the building blocks of life are common in the cosmos, right? We find amino acids, the building blocks of life. We found those in meteorites. We find those in interstellar space. It's it's everywhere. Um, So these other planetary environments almost certainly have building blocks of life as well. Uh, And so it's not Unrealistic to think about the possibility of other life forms evolving on these worlds.
0: That is just mind boggling. You said tens of billions of potentially habitable planets in the Milky Way alone, meteorites that have amino acids on them. So it's clear that the building blocks of life are common in at least our galaxy, and that the conditions necessary for life are not unique to Earth. So this begs the question where are the aliens?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, the answer is that we really haven't searched that much, right? If you think about the volume of the search space, it's a, it's a, it's an enormous volume. There's uh, hundreds of billions of stars in the galaxy, and we've sampled only a tiny fraction of those. And we've sampled them at a certain time, you know, instant in time. And if we're thinking about radio signals, for instance, we've sampled them over a finite range of frequencies. So in terms of sampling the entire search space, we've we've really only scratched the surface. There's, there's an estimate out there um, that uh, Jill Tarter initially proposed that in comparing the volume of the oceans to what we've sampled so far. And uh, in our initial estimate, she came up with uh, about a cup out of the Earth's oceans, right? And... Right now, that estimate has been revised to perhaps uh, a bathtub or something like that, right? Um, To indicate that we've sampled only a tiny fraction of the surge volume. And therefore, the fact that we haven't found anything doesn't suggest that there isn't anything out there. It suggests that we have more work to
0: do. Right. One can imagine pulling that bathtub of seawater out of the ocean, finding it empty, and declaring there exists no life in our oceans. We are alone. One of SETI's goals, that's the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, is to extend this, this search and to scan more of the skies for signs of alien civilizations. How do you guys go about that? What are your strategies?
1: Sure. In our group, we use the largest fully steerable telescope on the planet. Uh, which is the 100-meter Green Bank Telescope in West Virginia. It's located in a national radio quiet zone. It's an excellent instrument in a, in a quiet environment. And every year with UCLA students, we uh, design an observing program. We observe planetary systems out there. We collect terabytes of data. Uh, we download these data to campus, and then we work with students to analyze the data and look for evidence of technological signals, which are called technosignatures. Um, a technosignature is any evidence of a, of a technological society. So we're looking, for instance, for uh, signals that are very narrow in the frequency uh, region. So you can think of that as a as a channel on your on your radio station, for instance, and if if we found uh, energy in a narrow range of frequency, we would know that it's, a, it's not an, a natural signal. We would know that it's artificial. It takes, it, it takes a, a design process to manage uh, to do that. So that's the kind of signal we're uh, looking for. And every year we detect millions of signals, (laughs) but all of the signals that we've detected so far were generated by human technology, right? So the big challenge is to differentiate between human-generated signals, which we call interference, and extraterrestrial signals. So... Uh, It's a fascinating search. Uh, The students get really excited because they get to apply their skills in in math, uh, computer science, engineering, and science to address this really exciting question about whether there's life out there.
0: Wow. What an opportunity those UCLA students have. That is cutting edge science that they're doing. So if you guys were to find these techno signatures, what would they represent? What do they tell us?
1: we're looking for techno signatures, So we're looking for evidence of uh, technology. What that means is that we're looking for a signal that we know nature cannot produce. And that would be a pretty compelling uh, evidence, right? If we found a signal and let's say that signal is repeatable and it comes from a specific direction on the sky um, and we can rule out uh, earth-based transmissions and, and all of that, uh, then that would be a pretty compelling sign that there's a, another civilization out there. I should emphasize that we don't really know what other civilizations might be using in terms of technology, right? However, um, the radio regime, the radio part of the electromagnetic spectrum has lots of advantages uh, for communications. It is, um, it is cheap, to transmit information in that frequency range. Uh, The atmosphere of our planet and probably other uh, planets are transparent at those wavelengths. So it's a pretty good medium to to communicate. We're looking for any evidence uh, either transmitted intentionally, like a a beacon to signal your existence. You You can think of that as a kind of lighthouse Uh, Or any signal that we might detect accidentally, like a radar system or some other uh, technological tool that another civilization might be using. So that's the technosignatures. I should point out that most of the community is focused on searching for what are called biosignatures, which is evidence for biological activity. So those consist in trying to detect molecules in uh, the atmospheres of nearby exoplanets that might be indicative of metabolism, biological activity. Um, Or in our solar system, it might be, you know, uh, a sample from Mars that indicates um, that there was life on Mars. And other destinations are possible, right? We're thinking about Europa, Enceladus, uh, Titan... Uh, There are a handful of places in the solar system that um, we're trying to examine for the presence of biosignatures.
0: Europa fascinates me. This is, of course, one of Jupiter's many moons that, while it resides outside of the Goldilocks zone, that is, it's quite far from the sun, it maintains a liquid core because of the tidal forces that Jupiter exerts upon it. And there's actually these geysers that erupt from Europa. As I understand it, NASA is leading an effort to go study these geysers, right, and search for these biomarkers that you mentioned.
1: Yes, one of uh, NASA's flagship missions is called Europa Clipper. Um, It's going to launch um, in the next five to ten years. And um, it's a really exciting mission. We actually did some work as a subcontract for JPL for that mission, Uh, the there's a suite of instruments that it will really help characterize Europa, which is a fascinating world. The satellite of Jupiter, um, that, uh, as you mentioned, has these huge tidal deformations. We're talking a hundred feet of tidal deformation, and there's a ice shell that is full of cracks that open and close as Europa revolves around Jupiter. And underneath that ice shell, there's, a, uh, there's good evidence for a liquid uh, ocean. In fact, the most compelling evidence for the presence of that ocean was, was obtained right here at UCLA. Professor Margaret Kivelson was the principal investigator of a magnetometer instrument um, on a NASA mission. And th- it's the signal from that instrument that really provided the most compelling evidence for uh, an ocean uh, at Europa. In my group, we've measured the the spin state of Europa, and we find that it's tilted uh, with respect to its orbital plane in a way that also suggests that there's a liquid water ocean um, under the ice shell. So there's multiple lines of evidence that indicate um, the presence of an ocean at Europa, which makes it a very interesting target for um, looking for evidence of life. And as you said, it's possible to sample. Um, if there are plumes emanating from the surface, it's, it's a little unclear whether these plumes exist or not. There's some circumstantial evidence that they might exist. Uh, but if they are uh, clipper would certainly be in a great position to sample them and they will have instruments such as mass spectrometers that will be able to characterize the molecules, uh, in those plumes. So that's exciting. And Clipper will also set the stage for future missions to Europa that could be fully dedicated to astrobiology, um, such as trying to sample uh, material from the surface or from the subsurface. So there's a lot of exciting uh, work ahead for, uh, for Europa.
0: That's incredible. We live in such exciting times. I mean, to be able to send technology hundreds of millions of miles through the vacuum of space. To do experiments on a distant planet is just fascinating. I'm just hoping I live until we find a seashell on Mars or something. Going back to your work with the SETI program, you recently had time on the Green Bank telescope, right? What were your findings there?
1: Yeah, so we had a great uh, observing run on Wednesday, very successful. We observed for two hours and collected five terabytes of data. Uh, We observed 16 newly discovered uh, exoplanets, and these were selected by the students in the class. So I teach this course every spring. Um, We have about uh, 20 students in the class right now. They came up with these targets. We designed the observing sequence. We observed at the telescope. And it took, uh, let's see, more than 48 hours to download the data from Green Bank to... (laughs) Uh, UCLA. And we're now in the process of uh, analyzing it, right? So we're first uh, uncompressing all the data, and then doing all the mathematical operations that we need to do in order to try to identify these narrowband signatures that I talked about earlier. So there's a lot of computer programming uh, involved in this and data processing. And then we'll detect uh, probably 10 million signals in this data set and we'll uh, have algorithms differentiate between what is likely to be human generated interference and what could be an extraterrestrial signal. So our algorithms currently are 99.5% efficient at doing that job, which means we still have thousands of signals to examine. And the students will go through these signals and they'll, you know, make final presentations about exciting signals that they found. Uh, And in fact, last year, one of the students found the signal that for a while seemed like the real thing. And it was really exciting. Everybody was at the edge of their seat. And um, she gave an excellent presentation. Uh, And unfortunately, after further analysis, we found out that it was a terrestrial signal. But for a while, this was a really exciting uh, moment for the for the students in us.
0: That is fascinating. I think my understanding of mathematics simply ends when we start talking about doing these complex operations on this massive data set. But that's fascinating. It's quite remarkable the work we can do using computers and mathematics. Now, what do you look for in these data? Do you have like an ideal result?
1: The ideal signal is a repeating narrowband signal. That is confirmed by other teams at other t- facilities, right So that would be the first confirmation step that we would take is we would first convince ourselves that it's extraterrestrial that it's not human generated. We would then try to repeat the observation and we would then ask our colleagues to repeat the observation at other telescopes. And if you had such a signal that was observed, Repeatedly and independently by different investigators coming from a specific direction on the sky that cannot be generated by natural processes, then you have uh, you know compelling, truly compelling evidence that there's another civilization up there. so that's the ideal signal.
0: well, hopefully in our lifetime, we get to experience the finding of such a signal. I think it would change our perspective. It would make us look up at the stars a little more, knowing that there's something out there. There's another explanation that I've heard to the question of, if there are intelligent beings out there, where are they? Why don't we see them? Uh, And I'd like to run it by you. The idea is that there exists these great filters that prevent civilizations from advancing beyond a point. As civilizations progress, they reach a point of technological sophistication in which they're easily able to destroy themselves and the idea is that most civilizations don't get beyond these growing pains if you would and that they they kill themselves and so that's why we don't see our alien brethren traversing the cosmos and i personally find that idea quite compelling because we in human civilization have reached a similar point We have discovered nuclear warfare and are threatening our planet with climate change. And we've discovered great things like the scientific method and we've made beautiful art, but our wisdom doesn't really match the power that we wield. So I think it's entirely possible that we will destroy ourselves before we get the chance to Spread our wings into the cosmos and discover what it is like to be an advanced civilization.
1: Well, we're getting in a in a very speculative area, obviously, and it's it's entirely possible that uh, other civilizations have existed and destroyed themselves, and you mentioned dangers to our society, uh, such as climate change and nuclear nuclear war. Um, it It's certainly possible that that happens, however, all it would take really is for one civilization to survive uh, in which case they would essentially become quasi-immortal um, and assuming that they're transmitting at radio wavelength, they they pretty much anywhere in the galaxy, they would be detectable by our, uh, by our search. Um, so it's, You know, it's difficult to speculate about the number of civilizations out there and what might have happened to them. Um, One of the interesting uh, ideas to contemplate about the possibility of detecting a signal is to think about how advanced uh, this other civilization would be, right? So in our astrobiology course, we talk about the cosmic calendar which was promoted by Carl Sagan, this idea that you can put the entire history of the universe from the Big Bang on a one-year calendar to get to appreciate the, the timescales. So you put the Big Bang on January 1st, and you find out that our technology or ability to communicate with, with radio waves was developed in the last second on December 31st, right, just before midnight. And The question you have to ask is, if we established contact with another civilization, what is the probability that they've developed their technology in that same one second of this one-year calendar? Probability is almost uh, infinitely small, right? The probability is much larger that they've developed their technology at some other time on that cosmic calendar And that means that if we establish contact with another civilization, um, that civilization is probably going to be thousands of years or millions of years more advanced than we are. And imagine what we could learn if we established contact with such a civilization. If there was a message in that signal and we could somehow decode that signal, perhaps it would be the answer to the questions you're asking about. How do you survive? Uh, technological adolescence um, how do you do it and and so much more in terms of scientific knowledge and other you know uh it's it's hard to imagine the amount of knowledge that we could acquire if if there was such a signal,
0: yeah, there's no telling the insights we might learn from a civilization that's potentially eons ahead of us. It could be a similar situation to when europeans discover north america and they'll just destroy us or like take our water or something and comic books don't really help us there or it could be something beautiful a chance to make leaps in science and technology and climate management and morality all that is a possibility one idea that i love about thinking about this is that we're the same as those aliens if they were those hypothetical aliens, because we come out of the same universe, we made of the same elements and we're all connected by the, by space time, by the quantum field that underlies all. I would personally love to meet some aliens in my lifetime, but let's just try to survive until then. One way our civilization might be destroyed before it can reach maturity is through an asteroid impact. And asteroids are another area of study that you're an expert in. Could you tell me a little bit about your research and is the threat of asteroid collision something we should actually be preparing for?
1: Sure. Uh, So asteroids are really interesting uh, remnants of the planet formation process. And in in a sense, they give us samples of the interiors of planets, right? So some asteroids are the products of large collisions uh, in, in the solar system, and therefore, they are samples of the interiors of planets, which are difficult to obtain otherwise. So they're very interesting to study. And um, we've we've studied them with uh, a variety of uh, instruments and telescopes. We learn about their dynamical properties and their physical properties. Uh, they're fascinating worlds. And one of the reasons why we're interested in them is, as you mentioned, they they are a natural hazard. Right, there have been uh, five large mass extinctions in the last 500 million years on Earth, and we know for sure that the last one was uh, triggered by the impact of a large asteroid. So, it really behooves us to at least get an inventory of the asteroids out there and figure out what their trajectories are. Um, So, that's an important uh, goal that Congress is actually. Mandated NASA to accomplish, and we're nowhere near complete in terms of uh, doing that task. In terms of getting a catalog of all the near-Earth asteroids that could impact the Earth, we are fairly complete for the very largest asteroids, let's say one kilometer and above. But when it comes down to asteroids that are two hundred meters in diameter, for instance, we're <laughs> we have a lot of work to do. Um, so. One of the uh, techniques that we've used to study these asteroids is radar astronomy. We've used the the large uh, now defunct Arecibo planetary radar to characterize these objects. And there's also a radar facility at Goldstone about three hours north of campus uh, that we've used to uh, observe asteroids. And with these instruments, we get uh, extraordinary information about these objects. We can characterize their orbits with great detail, so we measure their their trajectories and we can improve the knowledge about their trajectory by orders of magnitude with these radar measurements. And we can also obtain very precise information about their sizes, their shapes, their spin states. We found that about one in six is a binary systems where you have two asteroids in orbit around one another. Um, And we can characterize those with great precision. So that's been, uh, an exciting aspect of, of our research as well.
0: So if one of these gigantic asteroids were to have a collision course with earth, what could we do? Do we have any technology in place that might protect us?
1: Right. So first of all, it happens all the time, right? The earth is bombarded with, uh, asteroid material all the time. It's just that most of the, uh, asteroid impacts are at small sizes. And at these small sizes, they just simply burn up in the atmosphere. When, when you have an asteroid that's a little bit larger, uh, it can make its way to the lower atmosphere or even impact the ground, and that's when that's when it gets uh, serious. So, an example of that was the impact of the Chelyabinsk asteroid a few years ago, where about a thousand people got injured. Um, in a small town in Russia, when a tiny asteroid actually made its way, so we're worried about larger asteroids that could wipe out, you know, entire cities, or if it was large enough, uh, it could actually destroy civilization. Now, those impacts happen infrequently, right? We're talking about millions, hundreds of millions of time ton- of uh, interval between impacting events, but nevertheless, we would like to make sure that. Um, such an asteroid is not on the collision course. Now, if we did find uh, an object on the collision course, there are things we can do. So this is an interesting aspect of the impact hazard. It's the only natural hazard that we can actually prevent, right? If you think about volcanic eruptions or earthquakes, we are completely powerless (laughs) compared to these events. But the asteroid impact hazard is something that we could uh, effect by sending a mission to uh, deflect the course of the asteroid for instance that's one of the most common ways that we're thinking about averting uh, a disaster and there was in fact last week a uh, planetary planetary defense conference um, that I attend on occasion where there's a, an exercise there's a scenario um, uh, of a you know uh, simulated, asteroid that is on its way to an impacting trajectory, and then you have different teams uh, trying to mimic what it would be like in real time to obtain additional observations and try to refine the uh, impact location, and then what could we do in terms of deflecting the trajectory. So this is being thought about uh, by space agencies, and it's an important uh, exercise.
0: Well, that's encouraging. That's yet another thing that just recently was science fiction, but now we're actually preparing for it and thinking about it. It's crazy how our perception of the world changes. I've heard a lot about asteroid mining, which is the idea that we can travel to an asteroid, land on it, and harvest its natural resources. And in the time of Elon Musk, it's not something that's super out of reach. This could very well be happening in the next few decades. And some say that it'll make the world's first trillionaire. Do you see asteroid mining actually becoming a thing?
1: That's being uh, considered by uh, several uh, private companies. Uh, They are looking at the possibility of mining, uh, as you mentioned. I'm not an expert on the economics of of this uh, prospect, right? So what would happen to the market, for instance, if you suddenly brought back tons and tons of uh, platinum, platinum, or other rare metal that we need on Earth for manufacturing purposes. Um, I'm not really sure what would happen, uh, but I do know that there are private investors looking into it. Right, and um, again, if they're they're thinking about potential targets, uh, they're developing uh, technology to try to uh, accomplish these goals. The timescale is difficult to predict. Um, but possibly in the lifetime of, of UCLA students, we'll be we'll be mining asteroids. It's it's entirely possible.
0: Well, I'd love to see that. Hopefully, our pal Elon hops on that train as well. Now, you do a lot of work on Venus, and if I'm being honest, I don't really know too much about Venus. I would say, like most people, I've hopped on the Mars bandwagon. I think the media is mostly covering Mars right now. But tell me about your work with Venus.
1: Oh, sure. Uh, so uh, last week, uh, we had a publication in Nature Astronomy where we described the results of almost 15 years of observations of Venus. And we have measured its spin state with great precision, with an, an interesting radar technique. And what that tells us um, essentially provides new insights about the interior of the planet and about the atmosphere of the planet. Um, it gets a little technical, but we've been able to measure the orientation of the spin axis of Venus with, with great precision, about 10 times better than previous estimates in, in both spatial dimensions. And for the first time, we've been able to measure what's called the precession of the spin axis, which is a, the motion that is similar to what a top makes um, when you spin it. And the interest in obtaining that measurement is that it tells you about how the mass is distributed inside the planet. And so in in a sense, we've obtained the first estimate of the size of the core of Venus um, by measuring this uh, motion of the spin axis of Venus. So that's really exciting. Um, We, you know, our uncertainties are currently too large to rule out certain models of the interior of Venus, but we're going to continue the measurements and gradually reduce the uncertainties to a point where we can actually um, make compelling um, inferences about the interior of Venus. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. The other um, aspect of these observations is that we we measured the, s- the spin period of Venus, the length of day of Venus with, Great precision, five parts per million precision, on twenty-one different occasions um, between two thousand and six and twenty twenty. So we have a new estimate of the length of day on Venus. But what we found is that the length of day on Venus changes by a lot. It changes by something like twenty minutes um, over the the time scale of our observations. And the mechanism that explains these variations in the length of day on Venus is an interaction between the atmosphere of Venus and the solid planet. So, if you think about it, the atmosphere uh, around the planet, it has what we called angular momentum, right? And it can transfer some of that angular momentum to the solid body and change the spin period of the solid body. So, it's a fascinating world where. Uh, the atmosphere can dramatically affect uh, the length of day the, of the, the planet itself. On Earth, this process happens also, but the changes are minute, uh, minute So we're seeing changes in the length of day of about a millisecond on Earth uh, due to uh, transfer of atmospheric angular momentum to the solar planet. But on Venus we observe up to 20 minutes.
0: And does that happen because Venus's atmosphere is so thick?
1: It's because Venus's atmosphere is much more massive than Earth's. So, if you were on the surface of Venus, you know you'd have ninety times uh, the amount of pressure that we experience on the surface of Earth. That's about the equivalent of being three thousand feet, on, on, you know, in a submarine, three thousand feet under the surface of the ocean. Um, so, it's a it's a lot of atmosphere, and the angular momentum contained in the atmosphere of Venus is also very large compared to the total angular momentum of the planet. So that's why uh, the atmosphere has such a dramatic impact on Venus's spin. In fact, the atmosphere is probably responsible for the fact that Venus's spin is retrograde. In other words, it spins backwards. Uh, It spins in the opposite direction compared to its revolution around the sun, which is pretty unique among the planets. Um, And also... If the atmosphere on Venus was, was thinner, the spin period on Venus, the length of the day, would be 225 days. And instead, it's 243 days in the opposite direction, right? So a dramatic influence on the spin state of the planet because of the atmosphere.
0: All right, so let me get this straight. So we have the core of Venus, which you said is solid. And surrounding Venus, we have Venus's atmosphere which is incredibly massive. And this massive atmosphere actually influences the rotation of the solid core of Venus.
1: Right. So there's multiple layers in the interior. Um, There's the core. And then on top of that, there's a mantle. And then there's a thin crust, just like on Earth, right? We don't actually know if the core of Venus is liquid or solid. It's, it remains a puzzle. It, there's circumstantial evidence that it is liquid, but we don't know for sure. We really need more data to confirm that. And we finally have a measurement of the size of the core, although, again, our current measurement has large uncertainties, and we really need to improve um, that estimate to to improve our knowledge of the interior of Venus. Um, and then, yes, the atmosphere is around... Uh, The planet itself is massive, it's mostly carbon dioxide, it has a lot of momentum, and it can exchange some of that momentum with the planet. So one of the processes is that there are large mountains in the equatorial regions, and there's just sheer friction between the atmosphere and these mountains, and that's enough to transfer that momentum to the solid planet and to change the length of day on the planet. So it's pretty, pretty exciting, pretty remarkable.
0: Yeah, that's pretty epic. You just made Venus way cooler. Now, you said that we need more data to determine the state of the core. What are these data that you're referring to?
1: Sure. Let me address the technique that we used first. Um, We used a a radar uh, technique, and we treat Venus as a giant disco ball, essentially. We shine radio waves at Venus, and then we measure how the reflections sweep over the surface of the earth. And we use two large radio telescopes, the Goldstone antenna in California that I mentioned, which is part of NASA's Deep Space Communication Network. Uh, That's our transmitter. And then we use the Green Bank Telescope again, which is located 3,000 kilometers away, 2,000 miles away in West Virginia and we record the echoes that we get from Venus at both of these facilities. And then we look, we measure how long it takes for these speckles from the disco ball, right, to travel from Goldstone to Green Bank. And we time that very precisely. And that gives us a measurement of the spin period of Venus uh, with something like five parts per million precision. So, it's a really satisfying technique, really satisfying measurement because of the high precision that it gives us. And we've done that repeatedly uh, over that time period, and that's how we know that the length of day changes. So, as we refine our estimates of the the precession that I mentioned, we'll gradually improve our estimate of the size of the core, and that will help... uh, people who model the interior of uh, planets get get better um, estimates of the core. You couple that with a model of the thermal evolution of the planet, right? We know that there was a certain amount of heat at the beginning of the planet formation process. And there's some additional heat generated by uh, radio radio decay of uh, elements in the the core and mantle of Venus. So you put all of that in a thermal evolution model and you can try to predict whether the core remains liquid over the entire age of the planet or whether it starts to solidify and form a solid inner core just like we see on Earth Um, and whether the outer core is molten, right? So that can give you a clue as to whether the core is liquid or solid. However, the best way to determine this is really... Uh, by observations rather than modeling, right? So one measurement that we can make is a measurement of the tides of Venus, right? Just like we talked about Europa changing its radius as a function of time as it revolves around Jupiter, the tides affect the, the solid body of Venus as Venus revolves around the sun. And the amplitude of that tide is measurable and it, and it depends on whether the core is liquid or solid, which makes sense, right? If, if it has a squishy center, you can imagine that the uh, deformation is going to be larger. So there's currently one estimate of that tidal deformation that suggests that the core is liquid, but we really need to get a better measurement of that uh, tidal deformation. And that will sort of uh, confirm whether the core is liquid or solid. An even better technique would be to send a seismometer or multiple seismometers on the surface of Venus because then you can actually measure how waves propagate through the surface and determine whether the interior is liquid or solid. That is challenging right now because of the pressure conditions that I described and also the temperature conditions, right? Venus is something like uh, 700 Kelvin at the surface. That's hotter than your oven Uh, on the self-cleaning cycle, right? It's sufficient to melt lead. So we don't have the technology right now to have seismometers that can function on the surface of Venus, but people are working very hard on this problem and they're developing high temperature electronics that will one day enable us to send uh, seismometers on the surface of Venus and learn about its interior in greater detail.
0: Okay, say you're trying to measure the amplitude of the diameter of Venus, and you have these measurements. What tells you whether Venus has a liquid core versus a solid core? Do we have some planet with known characteristics that we can compare these measurements to?
1: Well, we compare it to the the null hypothesis, which is let's say there is no liquid core, and therefore the amplitude would be tiny, right? It might be centimeters, uh, maybe an inch or so, and we can do these calculations, right? We, we put in the rheological properties of the material, the viscoelastic properties of the material in a model, and we can compute the effect of the gravity of the sun on the solid planet. So on earth right now, twice a day, the solid surface of the earth rises and falls by about two feet, right? We don't feel it because it's a slow process, but it happens. And that measurement is, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, that deformation is detectable from an orbiting platform, for instance. So we can do that at Venus as well, right? We can measure the amount of that deformation and compare it to our models to find out whether the core is liquid or solid.
0: Yeah, that's pretty remarkable. Do you see this work that you're doing and these discoveries that you're making having an impact on the future of astrophysics?
1: Well, there are billions of Venus-like planets in the galaxy, for instance, So we're we're curious about those, right? We want to understand uh, how how they're put together and how they form and evolve. But in terms of understanding our own planet, um, Venus uh, provides a really good uh, laboratory because it's about the same mass as our planet. It's about the same size as our planet. It's about the same composition as our planet, but it looks completely different from our planet. And the big question is, why is that, right? What happened to Venus that it has such a different atmosphere, that it has such different landforms than on Earth? What can we learn about how planets form and how our own planet uh, evolved over time by studying this planet that is right next door, right? So I'm a big proponent of uh, sending additional missions to Venus. There have been essentially no NASA mission to Venus in almost 30 years. Uh, in contrast, there have been something like a dozen missions to Mars in that same time interval. And, you know, I really want to see missions to Venus. <laughs> this is the planet most similar to Earth, and we have lots and lots of questions about it, and we want to find out a lot more about it.
0: If you had a magic wand that would fund any endeavor to Venus, what would you send?
1: Uh, there. There, this has been studied in great detail. There's several mission concepts right now on the table that space agencies are reviewing, right? So at the European Space Agency and at NASA, there are missions that have been proposed that could be funded and launched in the next few years. Um, for Venus, what I really want to see is, is another radar system, right? Because the, the atmosphere is completely opaque. To optical uh radiation. So you can't take pictures of the surface of Venus, really, with an optical instrument. You really need a radar system. Uh, so I would send a very capable radar system to learn more about the landforms, to study whether uh, these landforms have changed since the Magellan mission that happened in the early 90s. Um, so that one also had a radar system and it set, it sort of mapped 98% of the surface with resolution of about 100 meters to 300 meters, depending on the location. So, if we went back now, we could detect whether uh, there's volcanic activity on Venus, right? We could detect whether some uh, landforms have changed, and uh, that would tell us about certainly active processes right now. Uh, We could learn more about all kinds of uh, geology on the surface and the mechanisms that affect the crust of Venus. And again, relate that to the processes that take place on earth. Um, I would want to know a lot more about the dynamics of the atmosphere of Venus. Uh, the, The atmosphere super rotates. It rotates 60 times faster than the solid body. We don't really know why. It's, a, it's an amazing puzzle. Uh, there's lots of hypotheses out there, but we don't fully understand that question. I would want to see a lot more data about the winds inside uh, the atmosphere of Venus so that we can make progress uh, in this issue. And as I said, the atmosphere of Venus is really responsible for tuning the length of day on that planet, right? So anything that's going to affect the atmosphere, uh, if there's a change in the Uh, albedo of the planet or the reflectivity of the atmosphere, like if there's a big volcanic eruption, for instance, uh, if the eccentricity of the planet, of the orbit changes a little bit, as it does on long time scales, all of these things are going to change the amount of light that impacts the atmosphere. And that's going to change the length of day on Venus as well. So um, it's a fascinating topic—the uh, coupling between the atmosphere and the and the solid planet—and I, you know, I'd like to understand more about
0: it. I imagine you've put a great deal of thought into these matters, and I'm sure you've proposed these ideas to panels and to NASA. Why do you think they are so much more willing to support projects to Mars than they are to Venus?
1: It's difficult to speculate about these things. Um, <laughs> One possibility is that um, Mars, with an earlier environment that was suitable for liquid water, may have more appeal because of the potential for uh, biosignatures, Right, finding evidence of ancient life forms on Mars. It's possible that that's been driving uh, the exploration of that planet in part. I think it has been suggested also there may be another reason, a historical reason, where um, NASA was not initially very successful in observing Venus, and the Soviets were actually far more successful. And so it's possible that, um, as has been suggested, some kind of inferiority complex about exploring Venus. That uh, the American Space Agency hasn't just devoted a lot of resources to it. So, again, I'm hoping that that's not true. And I'm hoping that that situation changes and that the agency does fund uh, missions to Venus very soon.
0: One reason I can think of is that Mars is much more charismatic than Venus. Mars is all we hear about in the news. You know, Elon Musk is trying to terraform it, he's trying to send people there. Whereas Venus is, for many people, just some planet that they learned about in elementary school.
1: So to me, it's the complete opposite, right? To me, Venus is far more fascinating than Mars, hands down.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm glad you're passionate about it. We need people like you. Hopefully we see more efforts in space. I want to see missions to Mars and Europa and Venus. Really, the sky's the limit with what we refined chips can accomplish we just got to focus a little bit, stop expending precious energy and attention on really trivial things. I think about Europa often, and it actually comes up in conversations for me quite a bit. You know, there's three things that you need for life. Liquid water, elements, and heat. And Europa has all three. It's just begging to be explored. I want to go find some gigantic space wells floating in Europa's ocean but I'll save you from more of my far-out ravings. This has been great. Are there any last words that you want to say to the people of UCLA?
1: Well, my message is more about appreciating the power of the scientific knowledge. And we've seen that in particular with with the pandemic. Science gives us extraordinary tools to get at the truth and understand the natural world. And I don't think that's appreciated well enough. And we've seen the emergence of all kinds of conspiracy theories about vaccines, about uh, all kinds of things. And that threatens our society in many ways. And I would just like to impart uh, to your listeners that the scientific method is a really powerful tool to learn about nature. And I wish we would rely on it a little bit more, right? So that we we wouldn't be faced with these questionable beliefs that really affect our ability to function in society. Uh, there's been enormous amount of unnecessary suffering and death because of questionable beliefs out there. And it doesn't have to be that way, right? We, we could... Uh, <laughs> we could rely a little bit more on reason and the scientific method to manage these issues. Um, so that, that's something that that I think about a lot and how we could encourage uh, our, our current generation to rely on the scientific method more. And, and I, I don't know, I don't have the answer. I don't know what we have to do, but I, it does concern me that, um, Questionable beliefs can spread very easily, especially in the in the era of social media and so on and so forth. And I wish that we would have a little bit more discipline in confronting our beliefs with evidence, which is what the scientific method is all about, right? Um, you hear a claim, well, how do you know that, right? And having the discipline of asking yourselves, okay, I have this belief in my head. How do how do I know this? What what evidence is there to support my belief? Or more importantly, what evidence is there to contradict my belief, right? And pay attention to, to those data points and question our beliefs. And we're all susceptible to having questionable beliefs, all of us, right? Including scientists. But I think having that discipline of mind could really get us out of uh, trouble very often. Conversely, if we don't have that discipline of mind, we can we can get into trouble fairly easily.
0: Very well said, Professor. That's a major problem right now in our society. I mean, we we find ourselves in a pandemic of like a virus, right? COVID-19. But it also seems that we find ourselves in a pandemic of unreason. And I'm not sure how we get out of this. But I do think that the battle of ideas is one of the best things we can do. So challenge your ideas, challenge the ideas of others, And keep listening to each other. Commit to truth, and I think we'll make it out of this. So, with that, we'll call it. It was a pleasure to meet you, Dr. Margot. Have a great day. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Elder Lama Podcast. This is what the show is all about. It's sitting down with the brilliant minds of the UCLA Network and having conversations about a wide range of topics. The UCLA community is a hotspot of genius, and it's my intention to explore that genius and share it with you. If that sounds cool to you, consider subscribing on whatever platform you're listening to this. And if you want to interact with me, ask questions, suggest ideas, follow me on Instagram at ElderLlama.